Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about some of the weirdest ways that people have died in history. So got all sorts of stuff today. We've got uh, everything from the gruesome to the ridiculous. A lot of good old-fashioned blood and guts coming up today, I can tell you that. This is a suggestion once again made by Megan Simpson. Cheers, Megan. Cutting right to the front of the queue. You hate to see it. Nepotism at its worst. Anyway, plan today is to have a chat about five of the silliest or most notable de- uh, deaths from throughout history. And uh, we'll have some quick honourable mentions as well, of course, because there were so many. I mean, look, look, this list is by no means definitive or anything else like that. It's basically just five stories what I found pretty funny, uh, presented in chronological order. There is some historical significance behind some of the people we'll talk about today, but others are just people who died in ways that are pretty bloody unbelievable. Got a bit of everything, you know, being roasted alive, falling to your death, even dying after an angry mum chucks a roof tile at your head. But as I say, a lot to get across today, and once again, so many that didn't make the cut that, that very easily could have. But uh, let's get across the ones that did. Off we go. Let's get stuck in. Kick things off you with a with a, with a, again a, a couple of quick honourable mentions before we uh, we move on to the uh, the the more in depth stuff here. And to start with, we're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to the sixth century BCE to talk uh, to to uh, five sixty four specifically to talk about a bloke whose name was Arichion or Arichion. I, I guess Greeks are Arichion. I don't know. Ar- I have no idea. I should have definitely done some research on how this name was pronounced. Um, Arichion of Phigalia. Now, Arichion, he was a, a champion pancreatist. He was a wrestler, in other words, uh, from ancient Greece. And in 564 BC, he was defending his title at the uh, ancient Olympic Games, a champion, as I say, and he's defending his title. And in this championship bout, right, Arichion's opponent, whose name, unfortunately, we don't know has been lost to history, got Arichion in a headlock. And it looks like he's going to choke him out here. Oh, no, this is, you know, this is the end of his, uh, end of his reign as, as, a, as a champion pancreatist. He was about to be beaten. Arikion, however, has got a trick up his sleeve. Um, or not that they, you know, had sleeves when they were in the middle of these wrestles. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, he's got a trick. He uses his his legs, right, to grab onto his opponent's foot. So grab a, grab his foot between uh, between his own legs, and then ripped it backwards, dislocating it, basically pulling his opponent's foot out of its socket. Um, so the opponent, opponent, obviously, you know, in a huge amount of pain, recoils and immediately made the the sign of the surrender to, to judges. So sort of like the equivalent of tapping out back then, you know, surrender, signal to the judges he was out. However, when he recoiled back in pain, you remember that Arikion was in a headlock and he actually pulled back on Arikion's neck so violently that he snapped it and Arikion died on the spot. However, get this, this didn't stop. The, the fact that he died didn't stop Arikion from being declared the winner of the bout and therefore the Olympic champion once again, as his opponent had surrendered. And so his corpse was awarded the victory and Arikion went down in history for never having been defeated at the Olympic Games ever at the, you know, relatively low cost of, I mean, his life, but still worth it. What? what that's, that's He's got the heart of a true champion. Anyway. There's another famous death I want to talk about from uh, from ancient Greece. There are, there are so many from this period, um, but one you may have heard of, Aeschylus. Uh, uh, Aeschylus? I'm pretty sure I got that one right. Aeschylus. Uh, you may have heard of this bloke, very famous playwright. Uh, also, uh, he fought in the Battle of Marathon as well. Widely considered the father of the tragedy. So a big, big, you know, big legacy behind this bloke. Anyway, 
wrote a bunch of famous plays, revolutionized theatre, blah, blah, blah. That's not what we're interested in. We're interested in the way that he died. And you may have heard of this, as I say. In 456 or 455 BCE, right, Aeschylus, he was in Sicily when a bird, it was said to be an eagle, but it was probably a vulture, dropped a tortoise on his head. This is a real thing that actually happens. A few vulture species do drop tortoises in order to, to, to split their shells open and feast on the goo inside. And I tell you what, it is some bloody bad luck to be under a vulture when it does this, I suppose. And this Chelonian bombard was enough to kill the poor bastard then and there. So for the father of the tragedy, he uh, he certainly went out in a, in a bloody comedic way, didn't he? Anyway, um, another cracker here, a bloke named Sigurd the Mighty who died in 892 CE. He was a Viking. He, uh, he ruled Orkney and Shetland, part of modern-day Scotland, and he constantly raided the coast of the south, you know, as any good Viking does. Um, and it was on one of these raids, right, that he challenged a Pictish chieftain to a battle, and this chieftain's name was rather unfortunately Malebrichter the Bucktoothed. That was, that, was his epithet, that was his epithet, the, the Bucktoothed, right? Imagine being remembered for that. That's not the way. Mm. Well, I mean, it maybe he's remembered for good reason, as you'll, uh, as you'll discover. Anyway, this battle... It was organised, it was supposed to be 40 aside, but Sigurd just cheated, just ran the big cheats and brought 80 people instead. He actually whacked two blokes on each horse that he brought. And so, I mean, they say cheaters never prosper, but I'll tell you what, Sigurd absolutely wiped the floor with poor old Mal Brichter, no worries at all, um, and then chopped off his head, chopped off his head and strapped it to, uh, the, to his saddle as a trophy of the victory. So poor old Mal Brichter, the Bucktooth, you remember he was called the Bucktooth, right? And uh, this is where... <laughs> His bucktoothedness, even, you know, as he had his bloody head chopped off, his bucktoothedness ended up uh, being a little more relevant beyond the, the, the course of his life there because as Sigurd rode off, rode off right on his horse, Malebrichter's head, you know, bouncing along on the, on the saddle tied there as a trophy, this bucktooth actually scratched the side of Sigurd's leg and the scratch then grew infected and the infection then spread to the rest of Sigurd's body and he bloody died of it. So it turns out that cheaters really don't prosper after all. How about that one? Or, I guess, you know, wear a pair of pants when you're riding a horse. What has a human head attached to it with a buck tooth? Anyway, a uh, couple more quick ones here. Hans Steininger, he was a burgomeister from Braunau, which was then part of Bavaria, now part of Austria. Uh, he died in 1567. He was very famous for having an enormously long beard. His beard was so long, it was around two metres long. It actually reached down past his toes. And he usually had it rolled up and tucked into a pocket to keep it out of the way. Anyway, one night in 1567, there was a fire in the town in, in Braunau. And, uh, you know, obviously as the burgomeisters, as the mayor, Steiniger, he hurried out to help the townsfolk with the fire, or should I say, rather, he tried to hurry out to help the townsfolk, but unfortunately, he didn't take the time to tuck his beard away safely. And so as he rushed down a flight of stairs, he stepped on the end of it, tripped and fell down. The fall broke his neck and killed him, adding him to the very short list of men whose own facial hair has scragged them. Now, this may have been the end of his life, but it certainly wasn't the, uh, wasn't the end of his enduring legacy, because before he was buried, this magnificent beard that he'd grown, uh, it was cut off. And believe it or not, to this very day can be seen on display at the local museum there in Braunau. And then finally, one more, one, uh, one last quick one here, just before we get to the main five. I want to tell you about a bloke named Bobby Leach, a fella who in 1911 decided that it would be a good idea to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. After all, it had been done before. The first person to do it had been a woman named Annie Taylor 10 years previously, and she'd lived to tell the tale. So what could go wrong, says Bobby Leach? 
Undaunted by the potential that, you know, it could be the end of his life, he packed himself into a metal barrel, was set adrift above the falls, drifted closer, and then over the edge the barrel went, falling 50 metres below and crashing into the, uh, the, sur- the, the surface of the water underneath at the bottom of the falls. And of course, I mean, you know, you know what happens next, don't you? This wacko who decided it would be a good idea to become the second person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, you know, is now being featured on an episode about history's weirdest deaths. I mean, you can guess what happened, right? You know what happened. Of course. You, I mean, you, you already know. He slipped on an orange peel 15 years later and injured his leg and got gangrene and died after it was amputated. So <laughs> what else did you think was going to happen? Anyway, let's get uh, let's get on to the actual five here. Uh, the five that I picked because they're either historically significant people who died in ridiculous ways or because their deaths was just so unbelievable I couldn't skip them, or in some cases, both. And we're kicking things off here with Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was born in 319 BCE. He was a distant relevant of, uh, relative, I should say, of uh, Alexander the Great. Now, he ruled over Epirus, as I said, an area that now makes up southern Albania and northwest Greece. Um, he first took the throne when he was just a boy, but his rule was intermittent as, uh, as various political leaders, warlords, you know, they're all jostling for position at, at this end of the Mediterranean. And um, at, when he was, uh, I think he was 17, when he faced a rebellion that ousted him from his throne, uh, and re- uh, this rebellion replaced him with another bloke uh, whose name was Neoptolemus II. Now, in 297, uh, again, BCE, Pyrrhus uh, was ultimately restored to the throne after, after a few years in exile. Uh, he was restored by the powerful Ptolemy I Soter, uh, after he married Ptolemy's stepdaughter. So Ptolemy came in and said, all right, that's enough of that uh, Neoptolemus. Uh, I know you ousted this bloke a couple of years back, but now you're going to have to deal with him. And the arrangement was that uh, that Pyrrhus would rule jointly with Neoptolemus. Um, and that was how it worked until he invited his co-king to dinner and just like murdered him, straight up just murdered him so he could take the throne for himself. And from then on, um, Pyrrhus was the uh, was the sole leader of, uh, of Epirus. Now, as he began his second stint as the king, he became a very—I have to say—became a very powerful, very respected, and very popular ruler. The the noble class of Epirus was still uh, was still very much on his side, even after he, you know, murdered this <laughs> this other usurper here. Um, and uh, you know, th- this bloke—he he was often he, Pyrrhus. He's off. He's just fighting all the time. You know, he's finding people to fight. He's always off. You know, chucking around the left and the right in wars. Doesn't matter who he's fighting. He's just always fighting wars, right? And, and they were often, you know, he would often be compared to Alexander the Great for uh, for his you know, genius on the battlefield, his mastery of tactics, whatever else. And he fought a series of conflicts with other Greek warlords, um, allying himself with some of them, invading others, you know, losing some battles, but but winning a lot of them, it has to be said. And for the next 15 years, you know, that's just basically all he did, establishing Epirus as, as, as an important military power in the ancient Greek world. But then, in 282 BCE, war broke out between Epirus and the Romans, rather than with other Greek forces. Now, Rome, of course, at this point, a republic, and Pyrrhus was drawn into a uh, into a war when Tarentum, which was a Greek city on the Italian peninsula, came into conflict with Rome. Now Pyrrhus es- accepted an invitation from Tarentum to lead the fighting against the Romans. Tarentum was a uh, you know one, a small Greek outpost, basically an otherwise uh, a Roman-controlled part of the world. And so Pyrrhus leapt to the defence of his uh, of his Greek friends on the Italian peninsula, and so began the Pyrrhic War. Now, you know, he was very, very ready to continue fighting wars. Makes sense because, you know, he's quite good at it and he was running out of targets in the Greek world. Um, so he gathered a fleet and 281 BCE, he landed on the Italian peninsula just on the sort of, um, you know, if you imagine the, on the, the boot of Italy, he landed in the sort of the bit where the stiletto heel meets the sole. That's where Tarentum was. Um, landed there 
Uh, great big army. You know, he's got spearmen, he's got cavalry, even some war elephants with him, tens of thousands of units. Uh, and the fighting began in earnest. And the two major battles of the Pyrrhic War that took place uh, on the on the peninsula were the Battle of Heraclea and the Battle of Asculum. And these battles ended up becoming very famous indeed, because the Battle of Heraclea, it saw 35,000 men under the command of Pyrrhus face off against a much larger Roman army of 45,000 men. However, demonstrating his tactical brilliance, Pyrrhus was able to overcome the, the, the much larger Roman force, although in doing so, his army took enormous losses. And similarly, with the Battle of Asculum, the Greek were able to carry the day against the Romans, but again, their forces were devastated despite the victory. Pyrrhus, you know, he's in there, he's getting stuck in himself, he's fighting shoulder to shoulder with his men, leading them to victory, you know, leading the charges, keeping the morale up or whatever else. But these victories, as I say, came at just such an enormous cost, and a cost that was felt much more, you know, despite the fact that they killed way more Romans than, than you know, than the, the Greeks that were lost themselves, these losses were felt much more strongly by the invading Greeks because the Romans were able to replenish their forces quite easily. You know, this is the the home ground advantage that they had there. The Greek losses were felt far more keenly because they weren't able to just ship in fresh recruits uh, to replace the ones that died. And this, right, given the steep losses uh, of the of the Greeks that that weren't replaced like the Romans were, this led to a very famous quote um, from Pyrrhus, who uh, said, according to the biographer Plutarch, uh, after the Battle of uh, of Asculum. Uh, Pyrrhus was uh, was quoted as saying, "If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined." <laughs> and it wasn't long after these two victories, therefore, that Pyrrhus actually threw in the towel, right? And he withdrew without having having made any real gains, despite winning a hundred percent of the battles that he'd fought so far. And this, my friends, is what gave to rise to the a term you may have heard before, the term. Pyrrhic victory, a victory that ends up being, you know, doing so much more damage to the winner that it ends up being more like a defeat in the end. Another example of a famous Pyrrhic victory is, of course, the Battle of Bunker Hill during the American Revolution, where the British captured the Boston Peninsula, but at the cost of huge casualties and a loss of heaps of officers, which was obviously uh, very, very good for the momentum of the uh, of, of the rebels at the, at the time. Now, look, you might not think it's the sort of thing you want to be remembered for. You know, poor old Pyrrhus, you say, oh, remembered for being so bad at winning that he had to retreat after doing it. But I'll tell you what, it's better he's remembered for that rather than being remembered for how he died. Because Pyrrhus, after this, uh, you know, after the Pyrrhic, we continued to fight even after the campaign against the Romans. He fought the Carthaginian, uh, Carthaginians in Sicily as well. But then eventually he returned to the other side of the Ionian Sea and got back to his old habits, got back to his core competency of fighting other, other Greeks. And it was in one such fight that he finally met his end. While invading the Peloponnese, fighting foes such as the Spartans, after laying siege to Sparta, Pyrrhus marched on Argos, another city, and was successful in breaching its walls. However, during the hand-to-hand fighting on the streets on the, on the, on the streets of Argos, Pyrrhus was wounded by a bloke with a spear. And Pyrrhus rounded on him, attent, you know, intent upon avenging the blow, not knowing that the time of his death was finally upon him. And, you know, you're probably thinking at this point, I mean, all right, mate, an ancient Greek king, sure, killed by a spearman during a, a street battle. Nothing particularly ridiculous about that. You know, what, what are you on about? Go back to the bloke in the barrel. But it wasn't the spearman that killed Pyrrhus. Rather, it was the mother of the spearman who, seeing the danger that her son was in from this furious, you know, Epirate king, chucked a bloody roof tile at his head. And her aim was true, 
the roof tile, roof tile found its mark, right, caved in Pyrrhus's bloody skull, and he was struck down. He collapsed to the ground. And look, the tile may have killed him. It may have not. We don't know. But the following decapitation that took place while he was lying there definitely did. So I reckon Pyrrhus should be very glad that the term that bears his name is the Pyrrhic victory, a victory so costly that, you know, it might as well be a defeat, and not a Pyrrhic defeat, which is when you get killed by an angry mum with a roof tile. I don't tend to think too much of Christian saints and their patronages, you know, at the best of times, but I tell you what, if there's one bloke who deserves to be a patron saint, it is definitely Saint Lawrence. I want to tell you about this bloke and, and specifically how this bloke died. Lawrence was born on the 31st of December in 225 CE in Valencia in modern-day Spain. And as an adult, you know, travelling around, he uh, he visited uh, Caesar, Caesar Augusta, which is known today as Zaragoza, which is actually just a corruption of Caesar Augusta. Caesar Augusta was the name of the town, and over time it eventually became Zaragoza, which is what it's known as today. Um, and it was in Caesar Augusta that he met the bloke who would go on to become Pope Sixtus II. Now, remember, at this stage, Christianity, very much in its infancy, you know, it's only 225 years since uh, uh, since the birth of, well, not that Jesus was born on, you know, zero or one CE, but you take the point. It's, it's, it's around two centuries old at this point, not even. Uh, so it's a very young religion. But he meets, uh, he meets this pope, or he meets the bloke who's going to go on to become the pope, Pope Sixtus, Sixtus II, uh, who took Lawrence back with him uh, to Rome, right? And, and Lawrence became this, uh, this fellow's protege. And when he became the pope in, uh, in 257, Sixtus ordained Lawrence as one of his deacons and put him in charge of arms for the poor. So our boy Lawrence, he's come up real good, right? He's, uh, you know, he's known as the Archdeacon of Rome, very important position, looking after the impoverished and the needy. Nice one there, Lawrence, you've done very well, but it wasn't to last. Um, in, the, in the very next year, the year 258 CE, the Roman Emperor Valerian ordered a, uh, a persecution of Christians. And as I say, Christian, Christianity, very young at the uh, religion at this stage, Valerian, he wasn't mucking around. He came for the Christians hard. He decreed that all bishops, deacons, and priests be put to death on the spot. And on top of that, any wealth or goods that they had would be confiscated by the imperial treasury. Really wasn't a great time to be a Christian, whether you were coming or going. It really just was not a great time. Anyway, Obviously, one of the first to go was the Pope himself, Pope Sixtus II, who was arrested within a couple of days of the uh, of the edict, and he was executed more or less straight away. Lawrence, absolutely devastated. You know, he's lost his mentor. He's, uh, he's lost his mate. Bloody no good at all. What's he going to do? Um, because especially, I mean, he's especially unhappy because he knows that it's not going to be long before the Romans come for him as well. And he's right, because shortly after the death of Pope Sixtus, the prefect of Rome and the imperial uh, the imperial treasury they come a knocking and they demand that Lawrence, who you'll remember was in charge of uh, all the wealth that was you know to be distributed the wealth of the church uh, that was distributed to the poor, they he, uh, they demanded that he hand over all the church's cash. Lawrence, however, rather than give all this money to the Romans, instead, I mean, he this is a bloke who, as you'll discover very quickly here, he loved to take the piss, absolutely loved to take the piss he did, and so instead of giving the the money to uh, over to the authorities. He instead organises as much of the city's poor as possible to rock up and take it off his hands. He even, sur- he even sold off church assets, right, in order to try to give away, piss away as much of the money that, uh, as he could before the Romans came to collect. And so he gives away basically every, almost every last scrap of wealth that the church had uh, you know, to the impoverished citizens of Rome and then takes the piss even further when summoned 
to deliver the treasures of the church to the Romans. Because instead of, you know, carting along gold and jewels and whatever else, Lawrence rocks up with a bunch of the city's poor. You know, they're you know, people who are old or blind or disabled. And he presents them to the prefect saying, here are the treasures of the church. I mean, talk about taking the piss, mate. This bloke, an absolute sucker for punishment, but I suppose he knew what was coming. He knew he didn't have any way out. He knew he was going to be put to death no matter what. And, uh, I mean, look, absolutely furious here. This prefect, he, uh, he, he, that wasn't his name, by the way. His name wasn't absolutely furious. <laughs> I don't know what his name was, but it wasn't furious. Uh, anyway, the prefect, right, uh, he condemns Lawrence to death then and there, as you can imagine, and decides that this death is going to be a slow and painful one as well. He orders Lawrence to be tied to a great big grill and roasted slowly over a fire. And it seems that Lawrence knew that his death was imminent and had, uh, had, had accepted this fact. Because we know, I mean, we know this bloke loves to take the piss. We know that he loves to have a laugh, right? And uh, after he'd been popped on the grill, you know, while he's slowly roasting, he's bloody, he's in agony, right? He is a terrible way to go. But as he's there roasting away on this grill, he called out to the watching Romans and he said, turn me over. I'm well done on this side. And so, and so it was, right, that St. Lawrence became a martyr as well as the patron saint of, if you'll believe it, comedians and, altogether appropriately, chefs as well. I want to talk about a king called Charles the Bad. Now, I'm not talking about Charles the Bald here. This isn't a, a verbal typo. No, you know, Charles the Bald was a, a 9th century emperor who was the grandson of, uh, grandson of Charlemagne. Apparently, he was called the Bald because he had a thick, rich head of hair. Must be very nice. Uh, no, this bloke is known as Charles the Bad, which is really something. I mean, you know, not the terrible, which you could at least spin as being, you know, terrible as in scary. This Charles was just bad. He was just a bad Charles. Um, no, this actually wasn't it. It wasn't. It wasn't Charles the Bad, as in Charles the you know the poor quality. He was actually Charles the Bad, as in more like evil, not not evil, but like um, unethical, dishonest, untrustworthy, shady, that sort of thing. I suppose Charles the really shifty bastard just doesn't sort of have the same ring to it. I don't know. Anyway, Charles the Bad, he was the king of Navarre, which is a a tiny kingdom in the Pyrenees, part of modern day Spain these days. And uh, he was known as the bad because he was constantly plotting, planning, scheming, double-crossing. He just really was up to no good the entire time. He was a properly dishonest prick. He betrayed people all over the place. He's constantly looking for a way to advance his, his, his own kingdom's agenda at the expense of others during the Hundred Years' War. He switched sides back and forth, depending on which uh, way the wind was blowing and who was making the better offer at the time. The, blo the bloke really just did not have any scruples whatsoever. Initially, he, he had vast holdings in France, right? So in addition to being the, the King of Navarre, he also had a fair bit of land in France. But he lost it. Uh, he lost much of it after it was revealed that he was plotting with the English against the French king during the Hundred Years' War. John II, the French king at the time, he found out that, uh, you know, that this, this bloke, um, Charles, was, was plotting, plotting against him and didn't muck around at all. He had Charles arrested, stripped him of, stripped him of you know, many of his French titles, not, not all of them, but a fair few of them. Um, but this didn't stop him. This didn't stop Charles. He managed to escape from prison and then continued to wheel and deal behind the scenes, behind John's back, with other French nobles steadily betraying each and every one of them as he worked his way. I don't know why any of them fell for it after a while, because he was just as soon as he'd strike a deal with someone, he'd, just, he'd absolutely turn around and plant a knife straight in their back there. Um, but it all came a cropper for him in France in 1378, when his plan, when his plan to poison the new French king, Charles V, uh, was exposed. 
And it only got worse from there. Because the French, after discovering that they were, you know, he was trying to bloody murder the king, uh, they marched on his remaining French holdings. And when Charles appealed to the English for aid, the people you know, he'd, he'd offered to try to help earlier on in the Hundred Years' War, the English, the English responded to his call for assistance by swiftly sending reinforcements, reinforcements that then seized his remaining French lands for themselves, which was a very neat little double cross on the old double crosser there. And that's only what happened in France, because on the other side of the Pyrenees in Spain, it was more of the same. In the 1360s, the Spanish Kingdom of Castile and the Spanish Kingdom of Aragon went to war with one another, and Charles allied himself with Castile, before, of course, stabbing the Castilians in the back and instead going with Aragon. I mean, this was very obvious that it would happen, and it also proved to be a bad move, because Castile eventually invaded Navarre, and absolutely bodied Charles, forced him to surrender, and uh, forced him to give up even more of his lands. So, from go to woe, this bloke was bad news. Bad faith deals, betrayals, backstabbings all over the place, and the best part is, it did him absolutely no good at all. He went from being, you know, a reasonably powerful king with extensive French holdings, to a humbled, humiliated laughingstock, who no one trusted even slightly. I mean, now, I mean, now that you think about it, actually, Charles the Bad is actually a very appropriate epithet for this bloke because, you know, he was bad in every sense of the word. He was, he was in fact, a, an inferior quality Charles. And this is why uh, when he died in 1387, uh, his death was widely celebrated by, uh, you know, by, by more or less everyone who, you know, who heard that he'd finally popped his clogs, especially, especially when the news of the gruesome nature of his death spread. In his old age, Charles became very unwell. He was full of disease. He was hardly able to move in a very, very bad way indeed. And his physician ordered for him to be kept warm. Um, And as it turns out, this order was carried out just a little bit too effectively. There are a couple of different versions of this story with, you know, some minor details that are told differently. But overall, the long and the short of it is the same. Check this out, right? So the physician's saying, all right, you've got to keep this bloke warm. And uh, to keep him warm, rather than, I don't know, using a hot water bottle or something like that, the physician ordered that Charles be wrapped in linens that were soaked in brandy, of all things. I mean, very weird way to keep someone warm, but, you know, hey, it ended up working all too well because the alcohol-soaked cloth that he was then, you know, wrapped in like a bloody tight sleeping bag, it then caught fire, either thanks to a candle or the hot coals that he was put next to while wrapped up in this linen, so when this physician kid, you know, said, keep him warm, this instruction was, as I say, carried out rather more efficiently than the physician perhaps meant, because Charles was kept very warm indeed for the rest of his life, which was not very long. He was burnt to a crisp. Uh, he was trapped in the burning cloth and completely unable to escape, uh, you know, this conflagration. He just went up like an absolute, uh, went up like a cinder. Um, some accounts say that he died then and there, while others say that he uh, spent two weeks in agony before finally succumbing to his burns. But either way, I'll tell you this, not many people mourn the death of Charles the Bad. And in fact, many actually saw it as his just desserts, you know, after a lifetime of scheming and plotting and betraying and backstabbing. The story of his death was was shared far and wide, even made, it, even made its way into some il- illustrated manuscripts, which is one, one of the reasons today that we have a very detailed account of it. Uh, but uh, it really does make you think about a certain phrase that gets uh, trotted out every now and again. It really does make you think about the old phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire. Because Charles the Bad was such a liar that it ended up being liar, liar, whole body on fire. 
You may not have heard of Franz Reichelt, the uh, Austrian-born tailor who became very interested in designing parachutes at the, at the dawn of the age of aviation. Now already, you know, I can hear the cogs in your mind turning as you begin to figure out just how this bloke died. You'll be, you'll be shocked. You'll be truly shocked, I tell you, to learn how it happened. Uh, anyway, Reichelt, he was born in the Kingdom of Bohemia, which back then was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, today of course the Czech Republic. Um, but he moved to Paris at the age of 20, and he used the French name Francois for much of his life afterwards. He was a tailor, he was a dressmaker, uh, he catered for Austrian visitors to the French capital, given his native German tongue, he was very well suited for this, and he was generally very successful in doing this. However, in 1910, with the world's interest in aviation starting to well and truly pick up, Reichelt caught the bug as well, and he became very interested in developing a working parachute. Now, parachutes at this point were nothing like they are today. They'd been experimented with for, for a long time, but they were essentially just great big canopies that were already open. You know, they weren't packed away, tucked away, and, and they didn't open, uh, you know, they weren't deployed while you were falling. It was the, it was basically, they weren't the sort of thing you could um, wear while flying a plane because they were big, bulky, and, and as I say, already basically open. So, Reichelt's idea was to was to make a suit that wouldn't be much bulkier than a regular flying outfit, but would automatically unfurl and safely deliver a pilot to the ground if they fell from their plane. And so he's working away at it throughout 1910. He's initially having some success with some you know parachutes that he's affixed to dummies that he chuck out of windows. But the only problem was this: they were way too heavy, way way too heavy. These parachutes. His initial prototypes weighed around 70. Five kilograms, and even if they could convey a dummy safely uh, after being dropped uh, from a you know from an upper story window, far too heavy for a pilot to wear while flying a plane. And apart from the weight problem, you know when he showed this invention um, to flying clubs, they weren't convinced that the parachutes would actually even be strong enough that they'd be up to the task once you know pilots were put inside these suits and sent up in aeroplanes. He started more and more obstacles with his tests. You know, he kept piffing these dummies out of the window into his uh, building's courtyard, but this ended up busting up a lot of dummies rather than, you know, resulting in any successful parachutes. But then, in 1911, a bloke whose name was Colonel Lalance, he offered a 10,000 franc prize to anyone who could develop a safe parachute that weighed under 25 kilograms. So, Reichelt, he redoubled his efforts. He found he, he was finding ways to reduce the weight of his parachute suit more and more while increasing its surface area, which he was convinced was the uh, you know was going to be the way to actually finally make it work. So more dummies were sacrificed at the altar of this invention, but Reichelt he wasn't satisfied with just you know hoisting them out out of the courtyard. Right, he wanted to test them from a greater height, and I'll tell you this: he was in luck in that regard at least, because Paris was of course the home of the world's tallest building. At the time, the Eiffel Tower, at 300 metres tall, was the tallest building on Earth between 1889 and 1930. It was finally overtaken by the Chrysler Building in 1930, but up, you know, up until that point, the Eiffel Tower was the tallest building on the face of the planet. And so Reichelt, he applied to the Parisian police for permission to test his parachute suit by, uh, you know, from the first deck of the of the tower, which is 57 meters off the ground, you know, a much a much greater distance than the eight or 10 meters that uh, you know the dummies that were being chucked out the window were falling. Now it took a lot of time and a lot of nagging uh, of the cops here, but eventually in early 18, in early 1912, I should say, Reichelt finally secured permission for this test. Now he's absolutely thrilled 
It's, you know, finally, he's got a chance to test the suit he'd been working on for so long. Rather than seeing how it worked at 8 or 10 metres, the world would finally see it in action properly from a greater height, 57 metres from the first deck of the, uh, the, uh, the Eiffel Tower. Fantastic. And so it was that on the morning of the 4th of February in 1912, Reichelt arrived at the Eiffel Tower dressed in the suit himself. It turned out that his plan had always been to, to test the suit personally by throwing himself off the tower while wearing it. Now, the police, they were completely taken aback by this. They hadn't expected that. They'd only given him permission with the understanding that he'd you know, be piffing another dummy off. And many people attempted to talk him out of the stunt. The cops, you know, there were there were all these friends that were there to watch passers-by or whatever else. They're saying, mate, you're going to kill yourself. What are you doing, right? But Reichelt, he was determined. He was determined. He was sure that he'd gotten the suit right. He was sure the design was finally perfected this time. He was positive that it would, all, it would all work and that he'd be the talk of the town and snag himself that 10,000 franc reward. He was even offered, you know, just in case, he was even offered a safety rope um, before he, he threw himself off the, off the tower there. But he declined it. He said that he was resolute on entrusting his life to this new invention and that it was going to work. He was going to, he was going to show, show up all of his critics and uh, descend safe, flutter safely to the ground with his, uh, with his parachute, uh, you know, strapped into this big parachute suit here. And so it was that at 22 minutes past eight, after repeatedly re- rebuking every single bit of resistance the people offered to his plan, Reichel took his place on the deck of the Eiffel Tower, proudly outfitted in his parachute suit and stepped up on the railing. He stood there very calmly with a smile on his face, readying himself in the wind, and after hesitating for about 40 seconds, he finally launched himself off the tower and fell straight to his death. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know what you were expecting, to be honest. Reichelt's invention completely failed to keep him safe. It didn't even properly open. It instead just kind of folded up around him as he plummeted to the ground and he left a 15 centimetre deep impact in the frozen ground below and, and his mangled remains, they were taken to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced officially dead. In fairness, however, Reichelt, he did, you know, achieve one of his objectives at least because he did become the talk of the town, but, you know, perhaps not for the reasons that he was hoping. The papers ran the story complete with pictures the next day and, and people were absolutely fascinated by it. There, is, there was even film taken of his jump, which was played in newsreels in the days afterwards. And in one of the newspaper reports, uh, I quite like this, in one of the newspaper reports, uh, you know, rather than describe uh, Reichelt as a mad genius, one French journalist uh, suggested that only half the term could be applied to him. Still, to this day, we remember Franz Reichelt and, uh, you know, even if he didn't secure the legacy that he so strongly desired, history has not forgotten him. In fact, a picture of Reichelt is in pride of place, right at the top where everyone can see it, on the Wikipedia article entitled List of Inventors Killed by Their Own Inventions. And how would I be able to put this episode out without mentioning one of the most famously lurid deaths of all time, the assassination of Rasputin, the Russian peasant-turned-imperial advisor? Rasputin's story is probably interesting enough for its own episode, but here's the quick version. Uh, Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin was born on the 21st of January 1969 as a peasant in Siberia, which was part of the, the Russian Empire. Uh, in his early life, pretty unremarkable. He got married, had three kids, worked on the family farm, nothing out of the ordinary, but then... In 1897, he went on a pilgrimage and he returned filled with religious fervor. And he actually started to gain followers of his own as a holy man and a mystic. He you know, started to sort of 
uh, pulled together almost like a cult around him. And he came to the attention of the Russian Orthodox Church, given his popularity, given his charisma, and uh, and then later the, the Russian nobility in St. Petersburg, and garnered enough interest from them that he was eventually introduced to, to, the, uh, to the Tsar, Nicholas II, and the Tsarina Alexandra. And I tell you this, he must have made quite an impression on them. They'd been known to seek the guidance of, you know, atypical religious leaders in the past, but Rasputin really seemed to have gotten them good here. I mean, much of this was because he he claimed to uh, be able to heal the imperial couple's young son, Alexei, who had haemophilia. Rasputin already had something of a reputation as a, as a faith healer, and he put this reputation to work, I can tell you that, with the young Tsarevich. Historians today, even you know, still arguing about what he exactly did to help the um, uh, to help young Alexei. There are suggestions. Um, that he used peasant folk medicine or ordinarily reserved for horses with internal bleeding. Other suggestions include him dismissing medications prescribed by doctors that included aspirin. Aspirin was seen as something, you know, as a, as a, as a cure, not a cure-all, but like something you would just give to someone who was sick at the time. It wasn't known that it was a blood thinner back then. But whatever his methods were, the results spoke for themselves and, and he did really seem to improve Alexei's position and, uh, and, and help him with this, uh, you know, with his haemophilia. And this really impressed the Tsar and the Tsarina, so much so, you know, that it secured his position in the imperial, the imperial inner circle. Uh, he became a constant companion of, of Nicholas and Alexandra, and he became much more than, you know, than, a, than a, a, a spiritual advisor as well. He began to interfere in political affairs, advising on the appointments of ministers and, you know, making, um, giving, giving the, the Tsar advice as to how to proceed in, in, in various political situations. And uh, his influence over the Tsar meant that he was not popular at all amongst the uh, the Russian nobility. This wasn't helped by the fact that he'd also, you know, go out, get pissed and sleep with all sorts of women. Um, his wife didn't mind, apparently. Uh, he, uh, she, she would say that uh, he had enough for everybody, which is certainly an interesting take on it. But, uh, you know, he generally just go out and make a big nuisance of himself and, and caused all sorts of scandals. And as a result, people did. I mean, the, 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 the Russian aristocracy just couldn't bloody stand him. There were even rumours that he was rooting the, the Tsarina as well. That there's, there's not too much in the way of evidence to actually back this up. Still, his position in the Russian imperial court was uh, was more or less untouchable. He was in the ear of the Tsar constantly. He boxed out the nobles and the ministers, ministers that you know had previously been uh, instrumental in, in advising the Tsar in ruling the empire beforehand. And as you can imagine, this bred a lot of resentment, a lot of hatred. And I can tell you, Rasputin was not a popular bloke at all amongst the uh, you know the upper the upper crust of the um, of, of, of Russian imperial society. There, so much so, in fact. That with the empire crumbling after the outbreak of the First World War, with Russian feudalism falling apart along with its economy, a cabal of nobles decided to take action. They planned to assassinate Rasputin, planning to uh, uh, steer Tsar Nicholas back on course once his mystical holy man was out of the way. And the best record of Rasputin's assassination comes, if you'll believe it, from the assassin himself, a Russian noble by the name of Felix Yusupov. And so, I mean, this is the story, apart from the details that, that Yusupov actually recorded, which, you know, aren't necessarily historical, historically verifiable, we don't actually know exactly what happened. We do know that he was definitely shot, but uh, whether what Yusupov uh, says about this death is, it certainly doesn't paint Yusupov in a particularly, like, flattering light, so... I don't know why he would make all this stuff out because he does seem like a, a bit of a dill. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we've got no reason to think that it isn't true. But again, I just want to make it clear that this hasn't been like independently historically verified. It is just from the memoirs of the bloke what done it. So, uh, you know, we can potentially take this with maybe just half a grain of salt, maybe not a full grain, but at least half a grain. Anyway, 
This is the story, as I say, that's caught in popular culture. You may have heard it before. Here's how it goes. After midnight, on the 30th of December 1916, Yusupov invited Rasputin around to his place, and for whatever reason, Rasputin actually went along, despite the lateness of the hour. Yusupov took Rasputin down to the basement and offered him some tea and some cakes, and the cakes had been laced with cyanide, so the plan was to poison Rasputin in this way. So Rasputin, he munches down the cakes, yum, 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 but then didn't seem to be in any bother whatsoever. He actually just asked for some wine to wash the cakes down. So very confused, not knowing what to do here. Yusupov, he goes, all right, I'll go and get you some wine, I guess. Goes off, obtains some wine, but also has it poisoned with cyanide as well. And goes back, gives the wine to Rasputin and watches as Rasputin downed three glasses of it, again, completely unaffected by the poison. So Yusupov, Yusupov at this point is scratching. He's going, what the bloody hell is going on here? You know, how is this bloke still alive? I mean, by this stage, it's, it's half past two in the morning. Yusupov is wondering how he's going to get the job done before bloody, you know, before the sun comes up. So he goes upstairs. He excuses himself from Rasputin, goes upstairs to talk to his co-conspirators who are all there as well. And, uh, you know, they decide, they put their heads together and they decide, look, we're going to have to take a, a rather more direct approach to killing this bloke here. He might not be able, you might be able to shrug off this poison. Let's see how well he does shrugging off a bloody bullet, mate. One of them gives um, Yusupov a revolver, and off he goes, back down the stairs, back down to the basement, whips out the gun, and just blam, shoots shoots Rasputin straight in the chest, job done, easy. Rasputin collapsed to the ground, and Yusupov took his coat and his hat off the uh, off the prone body there, back to the conspirators. Uh, one of them dresses up like Rasputin, puts the coat and the hat on, and it was driven back to Rasputin's apartment, so people think you know would think that he made it home, made it home safely rather than you know, lying in a pool of his own blood in the basement of a of, of Yusupov's house there. The conspirators, they then returned to Yusupov's joint and uh, got ready to dispose of the body. Yusupov went down uh, and found it lying where he'd left it on the floor in the basement there like that. No worries. But then, without warning, as Yusupov is getting ready to, you know, dispose of the of, of this body, Rasputin leapt up and threw himself at, at Yusupov, attacking him with fury. And as you might expect, Yusupov just about bloody, you know, crapped his dax and, and fled at top speed back up to where the other conspirators are waiting. Rasputin's still at his heels, right, frothing, f- furious, enraged, uh, chasing this bloke up the stairs here. And uh, when the two men emerged upstairs, one of the conspirators had the presence of mind to pull out a gun and, uh, and shoot Rasputin again. And again, and again, just to make sure of it this time. And there's a good chance that the conspirators also went and, you know, put the boot in as well, to, just to make sure this bastard was dead after having taken four bullets. But imagine this, like something out of a bloody horror film, absolutely terrifying, a bloke who you thought, would, you know, was dead, lying on the ground there, leaping up and attacking you, bloody hell. Anyway, the conspirators, they weren't mucking around this time. Once they were certain Rasputin was dead, they were taking no risks. They wrapped the corpse up, they drove it to a bridge, and they dumped it into a into a freezing river. And the corpse, it was discovered under the river um, under under the river ice, I should say. Uh, two days later, by which stage the news of his death had already uh, spread far and wide, he was buried the next day on the second of January, nineteen seventeen. Although months after the burial, uh, his body was exhumed and it was burnt by some soldiers so as to uh, avoid having his grave become, you know, a, a shrine to uh, to any followers who uh, who he still may have had. And the story of his death, of course, it generated a lot of interest. Even now, you know, even today, it's still a very, very famous story. You've probably heard of it before. And it wasn't too long after Rasputin was killed that his imperial patrons followed suit, being uh, being killed by revolutionaries in July 1918 as part of the Russian Revolution. And the story of Rasputin and his remarkable death have lived on, you know, over a century later. The peasant who somehow became a trusted advisor to the Russian emperor, living one of the most ridiculous lives you can imagine, before finally being unsuccessfully poisoned 
twice, then shot, then shot again, and again, and again, just, just to make sure. And then finally, being dumped in a river, just to, just to, re- just to really, really super duper make sure. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are some of the weirdest deaths that have occurred in history. And as I say, by no means a definitive or authoritative list here. There are so many that didn't make the cut. Maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe I'll come back to it in a you know a couple of months and, and we'll get across some of the other absolutely ridiculous ones that I didn't get to today because there are there are still some absolute crackers. And, and thank you very much to Megan once again for suggesting this topic. It, it really was a lot of fun to uh, to research this. And uh, if you'd like to follow Megan's footsteps and make a suggestion, halfhousehistory.net, you can, well, I mean, she just, you know, came into my office and suggested it because we live together. But if you'd like to do the same thing without me asking you what you're doing in my apartment, go to halfhousehistory.net where there's a contact form. You can send in suggestions or feedback or anything else. And it's there you'll find links to not only the Patreon where you can support the show, but also the merch store. A very limited number of t-shirts available if you want to uh, uh, grab them before they sell out. And of course, a special thanks go to all the Patreon uh, supporters who support me week in and week out. Uh, if you'd like to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory is the place to do it. Um, I think that's it. I've forgotten there's other stuff I usually plug. I can't remember what it is. Thanks to the Patreons. You can send in, yep, the contact form. Oh, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, whatever. You, I mean, you're already listening to it through a podcast app these days. Unless you're one of those people who still downloads it from the website, I mean, much respect to you. That's how I always used to listen to my podcast. But, you know, you can do it uh, in a much easier way these days, Spotify, whatever else. So please get across that. And you leave me a review on iTunes if you feel like it as well. They're always very much appreciated. Anyway, I'm done. That's it. That's the end of the episode. Looking forward to having you back for more Half Us History next week. Thanks for hanging out. Going to leave you, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Gospodin Tavarish, who has a very pertinent death-related question for us here. They ask, I read that over 100,000 people die in hospitals every year. Why haven't we shut down these death traps yet?